Hello and welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership podcast series. I'm Scott Miller. I serve as your host each week and I'm now the author of the book tied to the podcast called Master Mentors, 30 Transformative Insights from Our Greatest Minds, available now where I was able to in a very light, easy, breezy way, recap 30 of our most influential guests from our first two seasons, where today's guest serves as one of the master mentors highlighted in the book because she has written my all-time favorite leadership book. Liz Wiseman joins us today to talk not about multipliers, but about her new book coming out called Impact Players. Liz Wiseman, welcome back to On Leadership. So, Scott, it's good to be here. I brought my paddle that you gave us, like this this token that we are, that I'm part of this collection of people whose ideas have influenced you. So thank you. Well, thank you. And to clarify for those who might be listening and not watching, this is not a paddle that you're paddling anybody with. That's your own business. This actually is more of a, as you said, a token that shows you are, in fact, number 19, master mentor number 19 out of the 30 in the book that I've written called Master Mentors. Liz, the book was really meant to be uh, an aggregation, a pollinator of people who I've had as mentors of mine, formal or informal. You were number 19 because as I've mentioned on countless occasions, both on this podcast and on the radio program I hosted and in my own leadership column, that your book, Multipliers, not your first book, but perhaps the most seminal book that you've written, has had a profound impact on millions of leaders' lives. It was an epiphany for me. As the chief marketing officer, I have shared, again, in numerous settings, that it was reading multipliers that really was uh, a stimulus for me to step down from my role. Not because the book shamed me, but the book inspired me. The book inspired me to, to recognize that I was identifying more with being what you call an accidental diminisher, and that I needed some time to kind of regroup and sort of requalify my leadership skills to become more of a multiplier. Now, we all know that from that book, you aren't either a multiplier or a diminisher. We're all working on both, minimizing one and strengthening another. But I'll tell you to our listeners and viewers, if you've not read multipliers from a guy who has read thousands of leadership books and sold a few myself, including 50 million copies of Franklin Covey's books, there's a reason why multipliers tend to the top of the heap and why Franklin Covey and Liz Wiseman partnered several years ago to bring her multipliers content into our all access pass. But today we're here to talk about your new release called Impact Players. I have a galley copy in soft cover. Uh, you now just received, I believe, a copy of the hardcover book. Hold it up, Liz. We're always proud to hold up the copies of our book. Yep. I opened hardcover. it like 10 minutes ago and uh, there's a book and they surprised me with this like fantastic spine on it. So, you know, um, when, when you write a book, like some people think, oh, how many books do you want to sell? Like every time I've done this, I think I just want someone to read it. Yes. And I hope it actually improves someone's work life. And so, Scott, when you tell me the impact that Multipliers has had on you, I'm like, okay, like my work is done here. And, um, you know, I guess it's also my hope for this book is that, you know, someone finds that their influence and their impact. And I think by outcome, the meaning and uh, the fulfillment they get in their work goes up as a result of the book. So It's very true. It's some of the most validating uh, moments of my career as a fledgling author, way, way beneath the impact and stature that you've had is when someone emails you and says, my gosh, just this line in your book has had a, a difference in the way I parent 
or the way I'm going to treat my spouse when they come home from the office tonight. So, Liz, Impact Players is your new book, uh, subtitled How to Take the Lead, Play Bigger, and Multiply Your Impact. I'm sure it wasn't coincidental that the word multiply was in this book. Liz, for the sake of my own uh, uh, appreciation for multipliers, take a minute or two and talk about the big ideas in multipliers and how did that perhaps even inspire you to pivot over to the new book that we'll talk a lot about today called Impact Players. Recap uh, multipliers for us. Well, you know, my work is really studying what I would call a high contribution environment, an environment where people are at their best, they're at their smartest, they're contributing, their ideas matter, their work has impact. And multipliers is a way of leading where people get to essentially play big. And, you know, one way to look at multipliers is there's a lot of leaders who are playing big themselves, but the people around them don't get to play big. You know, they're taking up too much of the room. They have too many of the ideas and either they're suffocating the people around them and having a diminishing effect, or maybe people just become reliant on them because they're really capable, smart, and they go to them for ideas and answers, and they go to them to be rescued when things get really difficult. And so it's about a kind of leader who allows other people to work and contribute at their very best. Now, I had been working on these ideas and teaching leaders how to be multipliers for about a decade. And, you know, I was starting to realize, well, there is a multiplier's obligation. The leader has an obligation to bring the right mindsets and practices to the team. But, you know, I started to realize that there's also an obligation of the team member that they need to bring the right mindsets and practices if they want to be able to play big. And actually, there was this one particular moment that kind of like crystallized it for me. And I'm out there teaching. And Scott, you probably had a teaching moment like this. And, you know, it's when things don't go the way you think they're going to go. And I'm out there, like, you know, pouring my heart out about how to be one of these kind of leaders. And I think this was up at Salesforce. I know it was in San Francisco. Like one of the participants, it was a you know manager there. He kind of raised his hand. He goes, yeah, I get it. Like, I want to be a multiplier, but like, you can't multiply zero. I'm like, what? Like, what is he saying? Is he saying like he's got a bunch of dummies working for him, that they're zeros, they're not talented, they're not capable. And then as I'm listening to them, I'm realizing he's saying like, there's things I need to do as a leader to create this kind of environment. But I also need the people on my team to step up. Like if I ask a question, I need people to come up with an answer. And it just got me thinking. And actually, it's that line of thinking that led to the book Impact Players. Liz, in full transparency, when I read Multipliers, gosh, I don't know, five years ago, I immediately had a shred of self-awareness, and I said, yeah, I'm not a multiplier. Now, I, I mean, in some cases, I was. I wasn't, you know, a complete diminisher. But like I said, it had a profound impact on me in that I did not identify myself as being an, a multiplier. Now, the good mm-hmm. news is, I'll be honest, when I read Impact Players, I said, oh, I'm an impact player. I didn't for a moment have this sense of, you know, humility around it. I said, no, this book was written about me. This book was basically a testament to my career about understanding how to work in the system and what is the culture and work on things that matter and make sure that I'm not off on tangents and things. Maybe, maybe I am verbally, but not on my projects. But I'm proud to say that I resonated the opposite, but both for different reasons. You know, I wanted to become a multiplier and I feel like I am. 
an impact player. Let's talk about the premise of the book, Impact Players, and why is this the topic you chose to spend the last two years with all your research and focus on? Well, uh, I'll, I'll start with why I spent time on it is because I didn't have answers to this. And, you know, I, I realized there was more to this story. Like, the leaders play this role, but what about this other piece? And I saw leaders struggling with this. So, you know, I'm... I used to work at Oracle and the president of Oracle, Ray Lane, once said, Liz, you, you are a dog on a bone. <laughs> and I think he meant that <laughs> with lots of love and affection. But what he was saying is like, you clamp down on stuff. And he's like, I don't know that I've met a more tenacious person than you. And I get this way, which is I've got a question and I don't have an answer. I need to figure this out. So that's why I, I spent the time on it. But the premise is that there are there are a lot of people who are working really hard. There are a lot of people who are doing their jobs well. And there are a lot of people who are going through the motions but not having impact in their work. And what was so, I guess, profound to me when I did this research, and the research was based on going to nine companies, talking to 170 managers, and asking the managers, like, in a team of equally smart, capable people, you know, tell us about someone who's making a strong contribution, kind of an ordinary contributor. Like they're smart, they're capable, they're hardworking and they're doing their job well. Versus tell me about someone who's smart, capable and talented, no more, you know, smart, capable, talented or hardworking than the other person. But that person is having an extraordinary impact. They're doing work of inordinate value. Those are the impact players. And what was interesting is when I heard the managers describe this and I looked at all the data and did the analysis, these ordinary contributors were, you know, they were doing their job and people say, man, you know, they do their job well. They're following their leaders. They're taking ownership. They're focused and, you know, they're carrying their weight. But what really differentiated them was how these impact players, because impact players do all that and more, and there's some small differences and it's how they handle what I call these everyday challenges. And, you know, they don't just do their job, they do the job that needs to be done. And, and you know, for other practices, it's got, I think it's why it resonates with you because I think you're someone who's constantly looking at, not, not what am I supposed to do? You probably have just a little bit of um, uh, irreverence for authority, that would be my guess that says, wait a minute, I'm not just going to do what my job description says. I'm going to do the most important work. And I'm going to do the job that actually needs to get done. And I'm going to go where there's um, traction. And, and so really the premise is trying to understand the small, seemingly insignificant differences in how people think and how people work that cause some people to make this enormously positive impact in their work while other people are doing their job and going through the motions. So you're saying the book really is just a, a memoir of Scott Miller's career and you watched all the things I'd done well and wrote a book about it called Impact Players. Thank you for that well, In hindsight, that would have been easy. It would have saved me about two years of work. <laughs> it would have been but, rated R. Okay, let's talk about what it means to be an impact players. One of the suggestions you propose in the book based on your research and your own experience is that Impact players kind of just, they understand the rules of the workplace a little bit differently than perhaps 
their colleagues. What does that mean? I mean, how, how do you translate that into a skill? I guess it's a little bit of cultural knowledge, political knowledge. You kind of have your head up and you're looking around. What, what does it mean to understand the kind of unwritten rules of the workplace? Well, starting from this premise, and this might be based on my experience. I spent 17 years in the corporate world and in senior leadership there. And it's certainly one of the things I learned is that the most important things aren't written down. And, you know, my corporate experience taught me not to wait for someone to serve to me on a platter. Like, here's what's really important. You know, there's what's written down, but then there's what's um, really valued, what the culture reinforces, what one's boss or client really, really cares about. And I think what these impact players do differently is they're constantly sensing what's important to this organization, what's important to my leadership, what's important to my clients. Like their orientation is on their stakeholders, figuring out what would be of value to them. And then they do that. So their orientation is not on self, like here's what I want to do, here's what I think is important. Their orientation is out in their mm, client base, if you will. And you know, sometimes our <clears throat> clients are managers, sometimes they're paying clients. And they're seeing the world through their eyes. You know, for for someone's contribution to be valuable, it has to be both received and perceived. And so I think it's this sense of, I'm going to figure out, I call it the win, what's important now, or really what's the agenda of the organization. And I think there's some ways that you can ferret that out. Liz, I think your book, Multipliers, is indisputably a leadership book. It's my favorite leadership book ever authored. And I'll, I'll go so far to say, I don't think Impact Players is a leadership book. I think it's an individual contributor book. Like it's a book that a leader would buy for the 40 members of her team. I think it's a book that should be required reading for onboarding and a new organization, new employee orientation for people coming out of college or coming out of their, their, their technical trade skill coming into the workforce. I think this is a book that is read to precede multipliers. This is a book that people should read in the beginning of their career or at any point during their career to help them understand how to make themselves indispensable, how to make themselves truly impact players. One of the points you recommend here is you talk about credibility builders and credibility killers. I'm going to read from the book if you don't mind. Credibility killers are, you know, these are, these are not aha moments, but I think it was Voltaire that said common knowledge isn't common practice. Do you love how I got Voltaire into the interview? Credibility killers are waiting for managers to tell you what to do, ignoring the big picture, and to tell your manager that it's not your job. Like To your point earlier, I, I couldn't comprehend at any point in my career telling my manager that wasn't my job. That's a credibility killer. To do the job they need done is a credibility builder, which is what you say is to do things without being asked and to anticipate problems and have a plan. Talk about the connection between being an impact player and constantly being focused on credibility builders and avoiding the credibility killers. Well, I want to start from what I, I found out in the research. And once I did this research, I felt like I had this secret that I needed to tell the whole world. Because in addition to asking these leaders to profile, what do ordinary contributors do? What do impact players do? Is I kind of threw in some bonus questions. And the bonus questions were, 
tell me about your pet peeves. Like what do people do on your team that kind of really bugs you, that get your goat, like that frustrates you. And they're like, oh, I don't have anything. I'm like, I actually think you do. And then people start to unleash. Like, I hate it when people just do their piece and they don't look at the big picture. I hate it when I have to remind people about deadlines. I hate it when this, and I hate it when that. And there were some very, very clear patterns. These are the things that end up killing our credibility. Now, then I asked, well, what is it that people on your team do that you love? Like when people do this, you want to give them more responsibility, more ownership, more freedom, more say. And those are really the credibility builders. And, you know, top of that list is, you know, to, to do things without being asked, meaning don't wait for someone to point out the problem. Just like, okay, I know this isn't my job, but you know what? this is a problem. So I'm going to just take the initiative and fix it. And, you know, also it's anticipating the problems before they even happen. Like, okay, I think this might go wrong. So I've got a backup plan in place. Oh, my favorite example of that is uh, Dr. Kevin Menace at the um, Sunrise Hospital in Las Vegas. It's just, to me, it's such an incredible example of what happens when someone is thinking about okay, I'm going to plan for the best, but like what could go wrong and how do I get out ahead of it? Also on that list is, you know, just um, doing a little bit of extra, like here's my job, but then I'm going to add just a little bit of a surprise, not a massive amount of extra work, but these are the things that when we do this, it signals to our leaders, I'm on it. I've got this taken care of, like I'm going to do my job, but I'm really going to pay attention to the job that needs to be done. And I'm going to get it done. Liz, the writing in the book is super practical. As I was reading it, and you gave me an advanced manuscript, gosh, six months ago that I was able to edit and think about, it, I can see all the people that work with me and those who work for me in various parts of, of the book, either in alignment of or perhaps in conflict with. I think one of my favorite concepts in the book, you talk about the contrast between what you call contributors, which has always had an inherently good term, right? We all want to be seen as a contributor, and what you, of course, call impact players. I'm going to read these slowly so that our viewers and listeners can kind of digest this. And I'd like you to talk about why this is so important, this contrast between contributors and impact players. Contributors do their job. Impact players do the job that's needed. Contributors wait for direction and impact players step up and then step back. Contributors escalate issues and impact players finish stronger. Contributors stick to know what they do and know best and impact players ask and adjust. And then lastly, contributors add to the burden whereas impact players make work light. So if you just take the descriptions of impact players, they make work light, they ask and adjust, they finish stronger, they step up, and then they step back. Expand on those. Well, these are the five things that they do very differently. And I think what's important is the behavior, the practices of the ordinary contributor are great. And managers were like, you know, these people are great. Love having them on the team. But they're great in ordinary times. And what I saw is these five things that were really different about the impact players is how they handle what I call these everyday challenges. And as I looked at it, I'm like, wow, yeah, you know, 
if you do your job, that's great. But when messy problems are dropping in organizations and, you know, the most important work is sitting between boxes on an org chart, it's like in no man's land. Doing your job doesn't cut it. Like the senior leaders of an organization and your clients and your stakeholders, they need you to be out into that white space. Similarly, when roles are unclear and, you know, like what organization doesn't have struggle with unclear roles, you know, most people tend to wait for direction. Like, okay, I need role clarification. I need a, what are they, like a racy chart. Like I need to know who's responsible for what. Impact players realize that roles are always going to be unclear. And when they see that leadership vacuum, rather than wait for that clarification, they're like, you know what? Somebody needs to lead, whether it's this meeting or this project. And so they step up and lead. And this is not surprising that people who have a lot of influence and impact take the lead. But what I found was so interesting is that they don't always need to lead. Like they step up and they contribute and do something valuable, but they're willing to step back. What distinguishes them is that they're not only willing to lead, they're as willing to follow their colleagues. So when you think about it, like what's it like to work for the person who always needs to be the leader? And, and Scott, I know you have kids and I think about um, like the PTA association and you know, I'm always appreciative of those parents who will like step up and take the hard volunteer jobs but then I'm a little bit suspicious of the parents who always have to be the ones in the big jobs. Cause I'm like, where are they going with that? Like, is that going to benefit everyone? Or is that, is that going to benefit their kids? And I think it's very similar in the workplaces. We love people who are willing to do their share of leading and to fill a leadership vacuum. But if they always have to be in the lead, you know, people aren't quite sure they trust them. So it's this fluid model of leadership that actually allows teams to be more agile. You know, then the third difference is really how they handle unforeseen challenges. They, you know, when we're in this contributor mode, we tend to take ownership, but then when something unforeseen comes along, like a global pandemic, something so beyond our control, we tend to look upwards and, you know, we escalate and that's what we're often asked to do. The difference is these impact players, they keep ownership. Now they may not be able to solve it themselves, but they have this completion gene that says, I'm going to get this across the finish line. I can't necessarily do it alone, but I'm going to go in and get support. I'm going to get, you know, senior management involved. I'm going to ask for reinforcements, but I'm not going to hand the problem back to the senior leader. I'm going to hold on to it, but rally support. And, you know, you can imagine, Scott, you've been in leadership roles and anyone listening who's been in that leadership role, like this is such a credibility builder when you know people are going to stick with it until it's done. You know, and then when targets are moving and what environment doesn't have like constantly moving goals where like I started with this thing, but it's morphing. You know, most people will take the goal, their objective, and they lock onto it and they stay focused but what we found the impact players tend to do is they adapt. When the target's moving, they're saying like, okay, targets changed. How do I need to adjust? In some ways, what makes them different is not only that they take feedback and they change as things are changing around them, is they ask for feedback before anyone offers it to them. And in some ways, they operate with this assumption that, you know what, in a fast-moving environment, I'm going to assume I'm always 
off target. It's almost like the way a violinist would start a performance by saying, I need to tune my instrument. Like it's a sensitive instrument. It's easy to fall out of tune. And so they're constantly adjusting to make sure that they're doing what's relevant and what's important like right now. You know, and then the last one is how they handle like just the constant burden we feel. And I think a lot of people are feeling that there's more work than I can possibly do. I can't get my arms around all of it. Well, you know, when we're working with this contributor mindset, we're like, we're contributing to that. We're doing our share of the work. But what the impact players are doing is they're not only doing their share of the work, they're making work light for everyone. And it's not by taking other people's works. It's not like they're martyrs, like, okay, I'm going to assume the work and I'm just going to be like a happy helper. It's they're creating levity in the environment. They're saying, you know what? I can't take this work from you necessarily, but I can at least not add to the burden. I'm going to make this a light environment, a fun environment. I myself am going to be easy to work with so that there's not the workload and a phantom workload. There's just the workload that we can all do sort of joyfully. Liz, I've sort of made you my own personal uh, Jiminy Cricket, like it or not, because I'm going to share a story right now about me. Surprise. But it's really about you. Because this is the impact that your books and your teachings have had on me that I think some people can relate to. And if not, they had members that work with or for them that can. So just very recently, our 20-plus year uh, chairman and CEO, Bob Whitman, retired from that position. He is now the CEO emeritus, and he is the chairman of the board. We have a new uh, CEO, Paul Walker. And we had a big party for him. When I say we, the company, there was a big send-off for Bob Whitman recently at a local hotel. It was a lovely event. And there were four or 500 uh, uh, current Franklin Covey associates there, those that had retired, those that had been terminated by Bob showed up. It was really a very lovely event where those that had both great and perhaps, you know, some conflict with Bob came together to respect. It says so much about Bob. It says much about Bob, right? There was, uh, you're exactly right. It was a lovely evening. When I learned this event was going to come, um, that I was not in charge of leading, that I was not invited to have any role in other than to show up and sit in my chair and applaud and appreciate him, I went into Scott action. I said, oh my gosh, I'm going to create 500 pictures of Bob's face on a stick and bring all these markers and call it the Bob Sickle and pass them out to everybody and he'll sign them and it'll go viral and it'll be social media. And I started calling printers and then I realized, no, this party isn't mine. This party is the company's and Bob's executive assistant, Stephanie King, who's uh, without question, competent. She's the opposite of me. She tends to be understated. She's quite simple by choice, not simple-minded or simple in taste. She just likes things to be um, on budget <laughs> and, and appropriate. And I tend to like everything bigger and bigger and bigger and over budget. And I really, I channeled you as I was calling the printer, scoping out the 500 Bob Sickles. Everybody would sign and have and post and do probably... <laughs> Kind of like this. Well, bigger than that. That's right. Put your paddle down. I, I, I channeled Liz because in multipliers, you talk about sometimes you have to play smaller. And I don't play smaller well, but I don't play small at all. I always lead. I kind of always steal the show. I'm sort of always the biggest personality in the room. And if I can't be, sometimes I either don't come or I sit in my chair and I'm super quiet. Like, the whole night. 
it's an immaturity issue. We all have them. I'm just self-aware about it. And what really struck me in impact players is that sometimes you need to step up and then step back. Now, I did not bring any bobsicles. I canceled them. And because I just let the party be what the party was meant to be, and it was lovely and flawless and perfect and phenomenal for Bob. But I think the impact that, Liz, you've had on me through both multipliers and, ironically, impact players, no pun intended, is knowing when to step up and knowing when to step back and having that sort of right, right, the right level of gas and break throughout your career. Thank you for that. Oh, you know, you're welcome. And I hear the images that I try to hold in my mind on this because, Scott, I'm, you know, a little bit like you in this way in that I'm very quick to fill a leadership vacuum. Like if there's a a group of people and they can't figure out, you know, where to go for dinner, I'm like, okay, some leadership is needed here. And so I'm really quick to offer my, my services as a leader. And I remember one time um, at Oracle where someone said something, which is, oh, Liz is taking charge, you know, like, oh, this is going to be a land grab. And I'll never forget that because I'm like, oh, they think that what I want to do is like, I don't want to be their boss. I was just serving in the moment. So what do I need to do to make sure that they don't think that I want like more space in this? Here's the images that I get in mind. The first is this like a flock of geese. And, you know, most people have seen the, you know, geese migrating in the sky, they fly in this V formation. And it's this beautiful model of leadership because someone, like one member of the flock has to fly at the point of that V, which is a hard job. You know, they're breaking the air, they're creating this kind of like drag uh, so that other birds can draft off this. And by flying in this V formation and having one bird take the lead, the scientists estimate that a flock can fly 71% further than solo flight. So it's what allows this group to do something big and hard, but one bird doesn't constantly lead. Like they take this role and they take on the the pressure and the burden of leadership. And then when they tire, they fall back and another bird takes over that lead. It's this rotating leadership. It's shared because in so many organizations, you get the people who are willing leaders who say, I'll do that. Yes, I'll do that. I'll take the lead. They end up exhausted. And then everyone around them is underutilized. The other image I get is just like going back to kindergarten or first grade or second grade where leadership jobs were rotated. You know, the class had, okay, we're going to need, you know, the, the, the line leader, the hall monitor, the book collector, the kid. And, and, you know, can you remember this image? Like there's like a thing up on a board with, when I was growing up, there were like cardboard placards with people's names and your name got slotted into this little plastic thing that said like, that's your job this week. And do you remember kids, how excited you were when it was your turn to be the leader? But then you relinquish that and you let someone else have their turn leading. Like it prevents burnout and exhaustion and it builds leadership muscle like across a whole organization rather than, you know, a chosen few. I'm sure I probably was the kindergartner that kept putting my name back in the slot and taking their name out. But that's a different book you'll write in the future. Liz, when I was the chief marketing officer of Franklin Covey and the executive vice president of thought leadership together for about a decade, I uh, geniusly, but perhaps maybe rudely, coined a phrase at Franklin Covey, 
in the privacy of the executive suite that said, you know, there's two types of people in the company, people working in company A and people working in company B. And company A was what the chairman and CEO cared about, right? The, the, the key contributors to client success and to growth and to profit and to shareholder return. And then there was company B, people who were working on their own pet projects, perhaps, and things that were, you know, not urgent or important, but were a, a, a foregone, foregone priority, something that wasn't a priority anymore. And then occasionally I was uh, right, but rude, which means you're wrong, enough to say, well, so-and-so is clearly in company B, and they don't even know it. And that beca- yeah. became a little bit funny and catty, but there was some insight to it, because if you were in company A, colloquially, you were on your game and you were sort of invincible. And if you were company B, you might have well been trusted and competent, but you weren't as relevant because you weren't either aware you were, quote, being put in company B by Scott Miller, philosophically. Move beyond how horrifyingly catty that was, there was some wisdom in it. More graciously in your book, you talk about impact players know when they are on the agenda and they know when they are off the agenda. Separate your book from my catty description of company A and company B, how does someone know when they're on or off agenda? Scott, as always, I love your caddy description and the, the, um, the alpha uh, works out really nice because company A is like on the agenda, mm-hmm. you know, and B is like, uh, we'll say being irrelevant or right, something. Right. It, the, the mentality is to be scanning for what is important and what is important now because things are constantly changing. It's not saying... Um, go after the um, like the irrelevant things. It's like keeping your eyes on what is most important, you know, the, not the urgent and the important, and it's contributing there. It's about understanding the agenda and then working on that agenda. Um, can I share two quick stories about this? Um, the first is from my own experience. I, I was in company B and, you know, I joined Oracle. Uh, it's this rapidly growing software company. I, you know, have this job as a program manager. I do it well for a year. There's a chance for me to transfer to this other group that does the internal training for the company. I'm like, ooh, I wanna, I wanna work on management training. Like that's my calling. That's my passion. And this group mostly did technical training, but you know, the company's growing and people are being thrown into management. And you know, young managers are sort of wreaking havoc. And I'm like, ooh, I bet their charter's going to expand to include management training. And I kind of want to be in the room where that's going to happen. So I'm interviewing for this job and I interview with the manager, the director, and then I'm talking to Bob, the vice president, and he asks the questions. And then it's my turn to sort of like say, here's what I can do for you. And I tell him, Bob, you know, I think Oracle needs a management boot camp. And here's why. And he agreed, you know, management was sort of a disaster. And I said, and I would love to build it. So I'm like offering my, my capability. And Bob says, you know, Liz, that's great. We think you're great, but your boss has a different problem. And he said, your boss has got to figure out how to get 2,000 new college graduates up to speed in Oracle technology over the next year. And what would be great is if you could help her figure that out. And he was nice, but Scott, essentially what he was saying is, Liz, make yourself useful. Yeah. Like he was saying, this is company A and you're trying to do company B. Like you're great, but you're off agenda. And I'm thinking, wow, I want to develop leaders and now 
Now, Bob wants me to teach programming to a bunch of nerds. And I don't even know how really, I, I don't, my programming skills are weak. And these are people like coming in out of Caltech and MIT, like, this is ridiculous. And I remember making this decision, like, you know, in, in, your, in your parlance here, if that's company A, if that's the agenda, it's not the job I want to do, but it's the job that needs to be done. So I'm going to do it. And I said, yeah, you know what? I'll be a technical trainer. If that's what you're looking for, I'll figure that out. And it was a lot of work. And turns out I wasn't actually bad at it. I was pretty good. And, you know, I'm having the time of my life doing this. And then they're like, okay, we need someone to manage the group. And it needs to be you. I'm like, I don't want to do that. I'm having fun teaching. No, it needs to be you. And I think it was because I was willing to subordinate my will in some ways. Well said. My passion, my interest. I was willing to subordinate it, not to be subordinate, because I don't know that I've ever had a super subordinate moment in my life, but I was willing to work on the agenda, company A priorities. And they noticed that. And then they're like, okay, well, now we need you to do this and this. And the jobs start getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And by, by working on the agenda, I started to then earn the right to set the agenda. Like, okay, here's what I think needs to be done. And at the right time, I'm like, you know what? We need a management boot camp, and I would love to lead that. And, of course, I was given that opportunity. But I think there's a lot of people who are following their passion, but they're, they aren't on the agenda. And, you know, if, you, if anyone's ever been off agenda, you know what it's like. It's hard to get budget. It's hard to get people to schedule meetings. Meetings get canceled, like progress stalls. But when you work on the agenda, like Scott, what's it like? Like you've got a lot of experience. Like what does it feel like when you're working on the right agenda? It feels safe. It feels invigorating. You don't spend a moment wondering, is my job in jeopardy? All of your creative energy and your talent is focused on moving forward significant, important things in the firm. You don't spend a moment in paranoia or in gossip or wondering what your future is like. You know your future will be taken care of because you're in company A. You are an impact player. I know it. I feel it. I've been there, and I've also not been there, and I've seen others, very competent people, not read the environment well enough and be very deep into their own passions and they end up having their, their careers either cut short or their influence minimized or their budget cut out because they didn't have the maturity and the kind of the antenna, right, to recognize I may have to become the technical trainer and move off of my leadership passion because this is what the company needs. And if I do that, it will likely end up better for me. It takes a bit of a long-term thinker, does it not? Well, it does. And... Um you know, but it can be fixed very quickly. Let me share just one other really quick story. I was doing kind of a webinar and sharing a few of these ideas about, you know, working on the agenda. And like, first of all, understand the agenda, get on the agenda, and then let people know that you're on the agenda. And um, there was a, a person who worked in a large church down in um, California, and he was uh, working as a worship leader. He was hardworking and capable and talented. He said, but you know what? I don't think I'm working on the agenda. Like the senior pastor doesn't even like answer my emails. I send him an email every week. I let people know what I'm doing, but I'm hearing nothing. Like I'm getting crickets back. And, and so I said, well, try two things. Number one, and, and I would suggest these for anyone who's suspicious that 
maybe I'm not working on the agenda. So the first thing was uh, in your weekly emails, tell them two things. One, here's what I understand to be most important to this organization. In that case, it was a church. Second, here's what I'm doing to move that forward. Here's how I, so here's the agenda. Here's how I'm working on the agenda. And he, he reported back and he said, wow, what an incredible difference. Like, first of all, my emails are getting answered. I'm getting support and encouragement. Like he felt what it was like to be working on what was important. And it's, a, it's about, it's a mindset of saying, I'm going to figure out what's important to the people um, whose work, um, like where my work serves them. Like I'm going to figure out what's important to the people that I serve through my work. And then I'm going to make that important to me. And I think that's like the first piece of like getting onto this path of impact. Liz Wiseman, you have been a guest on Leadership several times. Thank you for your time today. Your book is Impact Players. Liz, I believe in my estimation that you are the world's leading authority on leadership. Not the top female leading authority. You are also that. You are the world's leading authority on leadership. You are in the midst of a pandemic very safely vaccinated and traveling around the world. You recently returned from a series of engagements in Sweden. You recently were testifying to the U.S. Congress on the importance of leadership. You are now launching your new book, Impact Players. Franklin Covey, truly, Liz, is honored to be associated with you. We're honored to have the multipliers content in our all-access pass. Your book does not need luck in uh, its launch. It's going to crush it and do well. If you are a leader inside organizations, buy multipliers for yourself and for all of your leadership colleagues. If you are a leader in a company, buy impact players for everyone who reports up to you, including all those who might be on the front side of their career. If you're a parent, buy this book for your high school and college graduating children so that they understand how to enter their career and always be in Company A. Liz, again, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for joining us. And um, I couldn't speak more highly about the impact Liz has had on my own leadership career in my own 30 years. Had I had multipliers 30 years ago, I would not have left the company as the CMO. I would have ascended perhaps to be the CEO. That's not spilt milk. That's just self-awareness on what I have learned from Liz, including her book, Impact Players. Thanks for joining us. And we will see you back next week for a new conversation on leadership. Leadership.